glory of Jesus. We see the power of Your name. We see the greatness of Your kingdom. But Lord, we, we step out of this place and we get into the world and it's just, it's like it goes away and that, that haze comes back in. So Lord, we thank You for these moments when we can gather together and, and leave aside the unreality of this world and gather together to focus on the true reality, which is Jesus coming soon, Jesus living in us, Jesus crucified, buried, and raised. Lord, we love You and we thank You for Your work in this world. We pray, Lord, that You'd you would have mercy upon this world, Lord. We think of those uh, down in the south who are recovering now from another hurricane. Lord, be with them and bless them. and Guide our hurricane uh, relief task force as they think of a way for our church. Uh, guide us, Lord, in a way for our church to, to minister to, to some people down there, Lord. Uh, Lord, we uh, pray for your work around the world. We pray that you'd be work, uh, work in different countries around the world. Lord, we think of nations like Ireland and the Ivory Coast and Kazakhstan and Afghanistan. Lord, there's so many nations around the world, and yet you know each person there. Every hair on their head is numbered. And so, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would go forward in every nation. And, Lord, help us as a church not to lose a vision for the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Lord, I pray that you just keep that before us and put it in our hearts as a congregation. Lord, I pray, bless this church, bless the other churches in this area. May the gospel go forward, Lord, all over the South Shore this morning. We think of our sister churches like First Baptist Church in Weymouth and North River Community Church and, Lord, other churches that are preaching your gospel and proclaiming the name of Jesus. We pray, Lord, strengthen them, bless them this morning and protect them. God, we pray for a great revival to happen on the South Shore, that we might see people awakened around us, that we might see neighborhoods uh, opened to the gospel of Jesus, that people's lives might be changed, Lord, that marriages might be saved, that families might be healed, that lives might be rescued from darkness and brought into the light. And we know, Lord, we can't do this, but you can do it. And so we come asking in the name of Jesus that you would. Lord, I pray for this church in particular that you would bless us, that you would, you would help us with our space needs, Lord. Uh, Lord, we, have, uh, we thank you for the overflow uh, room we have downstairs now. And, and Lord, we pray that you would raise up the, the sound uh, people for the AV team and that you would raise up the ushers we need to staff that. And then I pray, Lord, motivate us as a church not just to be consumers, but to be providers as well. Lord, uh, we pray for those who are hurting in our midst. Uh, I think of people in our midst, Lord, who are sick and, uh, or shut in. I think of Maurice and Martin and Marjorie and Orville. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters here who have recently lost loved ones and are grieving. I think of Terry and Roberta and Bill, Mark and Chris and Ginny. Lord, I pray, even those I don't know of, just comfort them this morning. Heal their hearts. Lord, reach out and, and give them a, a kiss on their forehead to let them know that you are their loving Father and that nothing is happening in their lives outside of your goodwill for them. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us now as we worship. I pray that as we open up the Bible that we might hear the voice of God, not the voice of Jeremy, but the voice of any other person. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to your people this morning those words that you would have for them. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Well, if there's any children here, uh, kindergarten to second grade, they can be dismissed to Children's Church over here by the door, of, through the door by the piano. And any children who are going to be in the children's choir, they can also head out through that door uh, over there by the piano. Would the rest of you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2. I believe that's on page 1014 
for using one of those pew Bibles, page 1014. Today we come to the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2, the story of Jesus' birth. Many of you know this uh, summer, most of you know I was on a sabbatical, and uh, one of the things I did on my sabbaticals, again, as many of you probably know, I I got to visit a lot of different churches, and that was a great experience, uh, getting to go into a church as a first-time visitor and remember what that's like. Because, you know, maybe like a lot of you, I'm very comfortable here in this church. I mean, South Shore Baptist Church is kind of like my house, my second house. Uh, this is, uh, you know, you're my family. I feel like when I'm preaching a sermon, it's more like I'm having a talk in my living room with the people I love, my family. So, you know, I'm extremely comfortable here. And it's, it's easy to forget what it's like to walk into the church as a new person for the first time. And, and to, you know, try to remember, okay, how are our newcomers uh, experiencing this? And, you know, because when you're new, you're kind of like all your antenna are up, your sensitivities are out there. You're probably even overly sensitive. You know, and you're just thinking all these things like, you know, what's going to happen? And, and what are they going to do in this church? Am I going to feel uncomfortable? Did that guy just look at me funny? Is this church mean or is this church nice? You know, you know what, what's happening in here? And, um, you know, where do my kids go? And am I, sit down now, stand up. How loud am I? Am I singing too loud, you know? And, and am I dressed right? Am I overdressed? Am I underdressed? And just all these, you know, thoughts go through my head. You know, are they going to start handling snakes in the worship service? You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, we do that on Wednesdays, not Sunday. So uh, that, that's not a part of Sunday. But, you, you know... All these questions. And sometimes I wonder if for some people, if, if some of those questions are kind of like not just a sociological question, but maybe there's somewhere deep down kind of a spiritual side to it. Because, you know, coming into church isn't just the people. It's, it's you know, there's coming to hear, meet God. You know, is there a God? And, and so maybe I'm not just asking, are these people nice? But maybe I'm kind of asking, I wonder what God is like. And I'm not just asking, do you think these people will accept me the way I'm dressed? But I'm kind of asking, I wonder if God could accept me. Uh, maybe you've heard this old cliche. I've, I've heard it a couple times. actually heard it from people's lips. Um, you, you know, someone coming to, new to the church for the first time, and they'll sit down. After the service, they'll say, well, you know, uh, the ceiling didn't fall in on me. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've heard people say that. You, you know, with the implication sort of being that I'm so irreligious, I'm so far from God, that were I to come into the house of God, God would, you know, hit the smite button on his keyboard. And, <laughs> and that seems to be the implication. I, I remember I uh, talked to a lady once. I think I shared this story once before, but um, it, just, it just was a, a moment in my mind that really has always stuck out to me. And some lady who just wanted to talk and was kind of referred to the church by a friend. And uh, we're sitting uh, down in my office talking, and, and this woman had just lived a very hard life very rough life, rough existence. I mean, she was, uh, you know, a, a classic biker chick, you know, leather and tattoos and stuff. And now there's anything wrong with bikes. I mean, I wish I owned a motorcycle, actually. But, um, uh, so, so it's not that, but it's just sort of like everything you can associate, like, negatively with the biker lifestyle was like she had gone in that whole direction. And, and you know, just had a rough life and was sharing some things, and I was trying to encourage her and share with her about the Lord and share with her about Christ. Uh, and then it, it, at one point in the conversation, I said, you know, you ought to come to church Sunday. And she's like, oh, I, no, you know. And I, I forget her exact words, but she kind of had two fears. You know, one of the fears was, I'm not going to fit in with those yuppie Hingham people. And I was like, well, you should come to our church because that's not you know, how our church is. It's a very diverse church in many ways. But, but, but the, you know, the other concern was, 
could a person like me, with my track record in life, come to a place where supposedly God is? Uh, and I think that's the concern. So to all of those concerns and all of those kinds of fears and all those kinds of worries, I say this to you this morning. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Because Christmas is the story of God coming to our level. Of God, this great awesome God who is holy and who is awesome and who does hit the smite button sometimes. This God entering our world in such a humble gentle, profoundly redemptive way that even the most broken of us, the most scarred, the most, you know, dirty and foul and clean from our past can come to know God and be saved by Him. Look at the Christmas story with me. It's a beautiful story. And I just want you to look at it through those eyes. Um, The Christmas story is Luke chapter 2. It's verses 1 to 20. There's two uh, panels, two halves to it. The first one is verses 1 to 7. That's the story of Jesus actually being born. And then verses 8 to 20, that's the shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks at night, and the angels come and speak to them. So you've got the two classic parts of the Christmas story. Uh, and each of them, in their own way, are really about the humility and meekness in, in which God's kingdom comes. It, it's about God reaching down and drawing near to those who are broken and sinful and who don't feel like they could ever, ever be a part of what God is doing. So let's look at the story and pick up those themes. The first is the story of Jesus and uh, the birth in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So we start with this kind of historical footnote, but I think there's something more going on here than just a historical footnote. I I think that that Luke is really, he's kind of setting up a contrast. He's preparing us for um, sort of a, you know, this versus that kind of thing. And on the one hand, he's he's showing us the foil, which is Rome, Roman power, and against that he's going to contrast it with the humility of God's kingdom. So we sort of have this backdrop of power. We, We start off, you know, in those days, Caesar Augustus. Uh, Caesar Augustus was a very powerful emperor in Rome. Uh, he was, actually, his name was uh, Gaius Octavian. He was born in 61 BC. Uh, he was adopted by Julius Caesar. He was his, his, actually, he was Julius Caesar's grandnephew. Then he was sort of in these weird Roman families. He was adopted into the family. He became the emperor in 31 BC after uh, the Battle of Actium and then reigned to like 14 A.D. So he was, you know, a long reign. It was under him that the Pax Romana really came to be. This was just a great, powerful man. Now, uh, uh, Augustus did not claim to be divine, as some other Roman emperors later did, but he did claim that his father, Julius Caesar, was divine, and so people called him the Son of God. And people called him Savior, because he was the Savior of Rome. So, you know, so there's this sort of contrast in the background that's kind of echoing here the greatness of Caesar Augustus and the the greatness of Rome, even in the census. You know, there's an interesting thing about a census being taken. Of course, you know, ostensibly it's for taxation purposes. You count heads and then, you know, each person gets charged X dollars. But but I think, you know, a census also demonstrates uh, the power of Rome. It's like the gladiatorial arena. What was that all about in Roman culture? Well, I mean, it's entertainment. But, you know, it was a statement. The gladiatorial arena is a statement. Rome is master of man and beast. 
That's what the arena says. We put these animals in, we put these people in, we control them, they entertain us. You know, Rome is all about power and, and dominance and authority. And, and so even the census, in addition to taxation, it's like saying to the whole world, you know, sign up. And everyone goes, okay, because Rome said so. You know, it's, it's all this power, control, authority. And it's a backdrop against which the story of God's kingdom unfolds and how radically different God's kingdom is. And that story starts in verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So I, I kind of thought of this, you know, I've seen too many movies, but I sort of think of this like, how would I film this as a movie? And you know, maybe you start with like Caesar in Rome and and you know, he gives the decree and then all the people start moving and you sort of see the world in motion. The whole Roman Empire is, is moving and it's gyrating and people are flowing. And then the camera sort of pans down to Palestine and then it sort of pans down to Judea. And then, it's so, then you see this caravan of people, this long caravan of people on donkeys and pulling carts and camels and they're traveling down. And then it keeps just panning and zoom, 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 zoom until finally it's a teenage couple. Joseph, who probably would have been 15 or 16. That's usually when men were engaged in Jewish culture in those days. And we've talked about Mary, probably would have been 12 or 13. Nine months pregnant. Imagine a 13-year-old, nine months pregnant, on a donkey. No wonder she went into labor. Uh, you know, three days, or however long it took, bouncing along, going from Bethlehem south, about, or from Nazareth south about 70 miles to Bethlehem. So you kind of have this, this sudden shift from the greatness of Rome to this you know, nobody, podunk, little, teenage, peasant couple riding on whatever they rode on, going down to Bethlehem to register. And of course, Bethlehem is important because that's the city where King David was born. And that's where the prophecies in the Old Testament said the Messiah was going to be born. See that in the book of Micah. Out of you, O Bethlehem, will come the Messiah. And so that's kind of interesting. So really what you're kind of seeing here is already God's kingdom is at work behind the scenes. You know, it looks like Caesar Augustus is in charge, but you kind of get to wonder here, I wonder if maybe God is just using Caesar Augustus as a puppet <laughs> just to get his purposes done, which is to get the Messiah from Nazareth to Bethlehem so he can get born in the right place in the right time. Like maybe God is that great that in, in the great scheme of things, he has his plan that's totally off the radar of Rome but God's kingdom is moving forward. And that's often God works. His plans are moving forward. And we look at it with worldly point of view. We're like, God can't be doing anything anywhere. This is so messed up. But it's like, no, his plan is moving forward. You can't see it. It's often invisible. But that's because God wants to shame the world's wisdom with his wisdom and his power. And then it finally comes, verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there is no room for them in the inn. Now, I hate to burst the Christmas bubble, but that's probably a bad translation. It's probably not there was no room for them in the inn. It's probably a much better translation is there was no room for them in the guest room or in the spare room. Uh, in fact, it probably was not an inn in Bethlehem. Typically, these public inns were on major thoroughfares. Bethlehem was not on a major thoroughfare. And, and the word for inn in Luke is a different word than the word that's used here. So probably the scenario is more like, and most scholars agree, that Mary and Joseph went to stay with relatives 
and in their house there was a guest room, but there was no room in the guest room because everyone was coming to register. Now, typically in Palestinian homes in those days, these sort of agrarian homes, there would be the house kind of in the back with the rooms, and then there was a courtyard that met the street, and in the courtyard is where they kept all the animals at night. So, I mean, a more likely scenario is that they went to stay with aunt and uncle, you know, Louis or whoever, and, and there's no room in the guest room, which kind of makes you wonder, why wouldn't they let the pregnant girl in the guest room? Maybe there's a social stigma attached to the fact. You know, I mean, who knows? I'm going off on speculation here. You know, but you just wonder, like, all these things. You know, maybe already from the beginning of Jesus' life, he's marginalized. He's with the outsiders and the outcasts. I don't know. You know I, I, I'm going to go easy on that because if it doesn't say it in the text, I don't want to preach it as if that's the truth. But you just wonder. You know, your mind wonders these things and these historical stories. But the point is, he's born in a manger. <laughs> you know, what's a manger? It's a dog dish. Except for sheep. It's a sheep dish. That's, that's where the, the king of kings comes. Not to Rome or to Jerusalem. He's like in Bethlehem, and they're putting him, you know, it's like, well, get the hay out of there and the sheep slobber. Let's clean this up. We've got to put a baby somewhere. Okay, you know, let's put him in the manger. Of all places. Already, God is doing something radically different. And this, this king is coming with such humility and meekness and gentleness and that he's even being put in a manger. And you wonder if you could ever know God. You wonder if, if God could ever draw near to you and be in your life. And the answer is yes, he's already closed the distance. God has made the journey. Meeting God is not about meditating and getting up into the heavens. It's about God leaving the heavens and becoming a baby. He closed the distance to us. What a wonderful Savior. Look at his meekness. Look at his tenderness in this. This is not Caesar Augustus, you know, throwing his weight around and, you know, I'm the son of God. This is a humble baby. This is how God comes. But if that is not beautiful enough, look at the next story, the story of the shepherds. If that is not a, a, more, a wonderful picture of a humble, loving God, then look at the people to whom God first makes his announcement. Who is the first people to hear about the birth of the Messiah? Shepherds. Look at verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now, who were shepherds on the socioeconomic scale? Well, they were the low guys. Shepherds, they, they were just, you know, we might call them today just day laborers. You know, they're, they're uh, hardworking, salt-of-the-earth kind of guys. They're not powerful in society. They're not well-known in town and famous because, frankly, they're never in town. They're out in the fields all the time. It's a hard life. It's lived under the elements. It's lived outside in the, the cold. There's a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of cold nights. Danger, there's robbers, there's uh, predators. I mean, it's just a dangerous, hard, thankless life as a shepherd. And if shepherds were not powerful, they're not rich, they were not the influential people in society. I was trying to think of some, you know, maybe analogies to today. Like, who would be the shepherds of today? I thought, you know, lobstermen. Out in their boats, doing their thing, out into the elements. You know, traveling and fishing. Or how about uh, migrant workers at a cranberry bog? Or, or, or maybe I thought of guys working the high steel in Boston. It just, you just got to think salt of the earth guys. And that's who God comes to. That's who, you know, of all the people who get to hear that the kingdom of God has just invaded space-time, 
Who gets to hear about it? Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, governor of Syria? No, 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 no. Some shepherds. Which shepherds? I don't know. Just some shepherds. Not even famous shepherds. Just some shepherds. And again, it speaks to the humility of God and, and the fact that God is coming to save the lost, not to hit the smite button just yet. God is coming to save first. Is there a day of judgment? Yes. But today's the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's favor. So don't let it pass you by. So the angels come in verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Did you catch that? For all the people. All the people. Including the shepherds. Even the lobstermen get this news. And the steel workers and the migrant workers who are here maybe illegally. This news is for them too. It's for everybody. And that's the good news of the gospel. That it's, it's universal in the sense that the, the hope of salvation in God is for everybody, irrespective of who they are. The gospel is being proclaimed broadly to, to the whole world. And what's the news? Verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He's the Savior. He's come to forgive our sins and reconcile us to God. He's Christ. He's the, the Davidic Messiah. He's the King descended from King David who's going to reestablish the kingdom of God. And notice he's the Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase because that one is, is kind of, you know, no pun intended with the story, it's pregnant with all kinds of theological meaning because it, it could just mean the Lord in the sense of the guy who's in charge. But, but I think here there's this echo, this sort of um, a context of the Old Testament idea of the Lord God, the sovereign Lord Jehovah, God himself. Now, you know, it's, it's not blatant yet. And I think that, you know, some scholars that I've read have said rightly that Luke's theology of who Jesus was kind of is built from the ground up throughout the Gospel of Luke. So you kind of like inductively, slowly but surely learn that Jesus is more than just a man, but he's God. But it does, it's not just told to you blatantly in the very first verse. It kind, of, it kind of has to grow on you throughout the story. And I think this is one of those verses where it's like a little, boop, you know, Lord, what does that mean? Hmm. Luke doesn't tell us, but he says, think about that. He's Lord. And look what the shepherds say in the next few more verses. They use the word Lord in the reference to God himself. So it's just interesting. And then the choir kicks in, verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened, which the Lord has told us about. Just like Mary took off to go see Elizabeth when she heard about her sign, so now the shepherds are going to take off and go to Bethlehem when they hear about this sign. The sign of God. The sign that God is among us. A baby in a manger. It just shows the beautiful, upside-down, surprising nature of God's kingdom and its humility and gentleness. And we wonder, could God ever accept me? Could there be any forgiveness and hope for me? Man, look at how God has entered the world. He came as a nobody, born to nobodies. And, and how, how was his birth announced? It was announced to nobody shepherds. It's just screaming out salvation for all mankind, for all who will turn to Christ. Uh, it's just such a beautiful picture. You know, the reality is, people, this is, this is the truth. We're all nobodies. We are all broken sinners. None of us can stand before God and say, hey, check it out. <laughs> you know, 
it's me. You know, we can't, we can't say that to God. Uh, I mean, you can say it, but it's not going to get you anywhere. You know, God is he's, he's sovereign. He's great. And all of us are, are just broken, sinful people in need of reconciliation to God. Now, we don't see each other that way because we compare ourselves to each other. You know, we say, well, you know, who's that person sitting in the pew next to me? Or we say, I could never sit in this pew with those people because they're so, uh, you know. So we, we make all these comparisons. But, but they're so baloney compared to God. There's only one person we need to compare ourselves to is God. And that doesn't work. And so we need his salvation. That, it's that simple. Uh, someone once told an analogy that has always stuck with me. I heard a preacher use this. He, he said, you know what we're like? He says, we're like little grains of sand in a little sand pile. Think of this little sand pile, maybe about that high, and all these little grains of sand, and we're sort of comparing ourselves to each other, like, hmm, I'm above that grain, and ooh, look at that grain, way up there, wow, you know. And, and so we're kind of like, ooh, he's so high, I'm so low, and we have all these little comparisons we make in the sand pile. Now take the distances between the the grain, and compare that to the distance between the grains and the sun. Thousands, millions of miles away. I don't know how far the sun is. Whatever, someone science person can correct me. I know it's more than at least 15. So it's way up there and, and there's this huge distance and think about the size of a grain of sand compared to the sun. That's the difference between our greatness and God's greatness. That's the difference between our size and power and God's size and power. God is so great. But the amazing story of Christmas is that the sun became a grain of sand. And not just any grain of sand, but he went to the bottom of the pile. It's like, I, I can't get my mind around it. And if you think that, that there's no hope for you, I mean, just think of the Christmas story. That God would become a baby, and not just any baby, but a nobody baby. To reach out to those who are most broken and hurting and lost. That's the story of Luke. It's the story of God going to the fringes of society, not the center, in order to gather a people for himself. What a great salvation. And it should change our lives. It, 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 the more we think about it, it should affect us. How should it affect our lives? Well, a lot of different ways. And uh, I don't have time to go into all of them. But just let's just look at verses 16 to 20. Because in verses 16 to 20, you have the responses of the people to the birth of Jesus in the news. And I think Luke is sort of holding these up as um, kind of a model for how we should respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of this in Luke of, this is what happened, here's how the people responded. And I think Luke kind of invites us to join in the response. So if you look at uh, verses 16 to 20, there's two responses. There's the response of the shepherds and the response of Mary. And let's look at Mary's response first. Take them in reverse order. Look at verse 19. It says, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. I think the first thing that we're, we need to do is ponder these things. I, I think in telling us that tidbit, I think Luke is in a sense kind of inviting us to join Mary. We, we've get, been given all the background information like Mary has. So let's, let, let's ponder. What does all of this mean? What's the significance of these events? You know, we, we don't live in a very ponder-friendly culture. <laughs> our, our culture doesn't encourage pondering. Uh, pondering is kind of out in America. You know, what's in is getting things done. Uh, but pondering, you know, pondering takes time, it's inconvenient. You know, we get up in the morning, food, paper, car, sports radio on the way in, work all day, right? And then, you know, there's like emails and phone calls and meetings and other emails, voicemail, cell phone, work's done, get in the car, talk radio on the way home, whatever you listen to. You know, we get home, da-da-da, dinner, da-da-da, and then TV before bed, I'm out. 
And then the, the alarm goes off, and the alarm isn't beep, beep, beep. It's news, and it's like WBZ News, and we listen to the news. And, you know, so it was like we never stop. And, and when can you ponder when we, live, when we all live like that? When, when do you have time? When do I have time to just, you know, let my mind think about the significant things in life? And I think that, you know, God is inviting us to say, will you ponder this? Will you turn this over? There's this real danger, people, that we're going to just fly through life accomplish all these things, make all this money, uh, have all these toys, and get to the end of our lives, and then croak, and then have never thought about Christ. And then we'll stand before God, and He'll say, well, He'll be like, well, um, you know, look at all this stuff, and God's like, I don't see anything. That's just trash. So? What do you think of Jesus? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus, fill me in again on that. No, no, too late, too late. Now is the time when we're to think about the things of God. People, the most important thing that's ever happened in all of human history happened when God came into the world in the person of Jesus. As someone has said, the hinge of history swings on the hinge of the stable door. That's where it all happened. And, and unless I stop and think about these things, I've got to ponder it. What does it tell me about the heart of God that God came as a humble baby? What does that tell me about the meaning of the gospel? What does that mean for my life? You know, you know we've got to answer those kinds of questions. And you can't do that on the fly you know, while waiting in line at McDonald's to get food real quick. It just takes time. So we need to spend time, you know, studying God's Word. That's one of the reasons we, we push Bible studies like loop groups in this church is because, you know, a Bible study is a place where you can just sort of push the world back and sit together as believers and kind of, you know, sort of group ponder. And sometimes it, we need help because we don't do it enough. We need to sort of like support each other as we practice pondering, which we don't do. So ponder these things. Think about the meaning of these things. Think about this Savior who came for you to save that which was lost. Have you ever put your faith in Christ personally? What's life all about? Ask the big questions. Just go for it. Because there's answers to be found. And then the second response, besides pondering, is proclaiming. We've got to think about it, then we've got to go out and talk about it. And you see that in the shepherds. Go back to verse 16. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they, seen him, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So we've got to spread the word. We have to, and, and so really, the, the first evangelist in Luke Acts, which is two books all about evangelism in many ways, the first evangelist are these shepherds, which I find highly encouraging. But this is a simple enough thing that if those guys can do it, you know, we can probably do it too. You don't need a seminary degree. In fact, sometimes it gets in the way a little bit. You just need the simple story of Jesus. We make evangelism so much more complex than it needs to be. Evangelism is just telling people of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in your life. And, and so you don't have to have a script. You don't have to have a... But, but you do have, we do have to open our mouths and talk about Jesus as the opportunities arise. You know, people become Christians. Why? Why do people become Christians? Because they really like the church? No, but that may help. But that's not why they become Christians. Because they like the pastor? No. Why do people become Christians? Because they meet Jesus. That's why you become a Christian. Because you're like, it's this guy. It's this guy. And I can't get around him. And I can't get him out of my head or out of my heart. 
That's what brings people to faith. The best argument for Christianity is Jesus. And the best argument for Jesus is Jesus. Just read more about this person. And, you know, if he doesn't captivate your heart, well, I don't know what to say. This is the best argument for it. So we just got to share Jesus more. Uh, a couple tools I wanted to highlight for you. Um, it just, you know, because I know this is one of these issues where people, uh, you know, struggle. I struggle. It's a tough one. How do I share my faith? I'm, I'm a private person. Who am I to go out and tell this about my faith? And a great book on how to share your faith, I read it this summer, is called Speaking of Jesus. And I'll just leave it up here in the front, and you can come up after the service and get this stuff. The other thing is a, a, a tool. You guys have seen these Red Sox DVDs that are produced? Our church has bought 1,400 more of them. We want to hand them out. It's, it's like 22 minutes, and it's uh, all of these different Red Sox players. There's a lot of born-again Christians on the Red Sox. It's pretty amazing. And they tell their stories of their own personal faith in this. So, you know, it's an easy start. So if you're kind of like, I want training wheels for evangelism, just get one of these, go to someone you know, if you can find someone around here who likes the Red Sox, and, and you go to them and you say... Hey, you know, check this out. And then this is key. You've got to go to them two weeks later and say, did you watch it? Because if you don't say that, then they'll just say, oh, sure, and then they'll get, you know, filed away. But it's just 22 minutes, it's short, 24 minutes, something like that. But, you know, we just need to get out there and start doing it. I think, what, are you handing these out later downstairs? So if you want one of these, go downstairs and get one. I think they're handing these out. It's a great video, easy, easy giveaway. But, you know, we need to get in that process of proclaiming. And, and I'm preaching to myself here because I'm a private person, too. It's hard to do that. But... People, this news is so huge. I mean, we can't sit on this. It would be a crime to sit on this. It's like sitting on the cure to cancer. This is way better. This is the cure to eternal life. You know, the cure to sin. Far more important than the cure to cancer. Far more important than the cure to AIDS. Can you imagine having it and just sitting on it? And we're sitting on it. I'm sitting on it. So we've got to get out there and proclaim the good news of Christ as the Holy Spirit enables us and strengthens us. What an awesome God we have. Ponder that. Proclaim it. A God who loves us so much that He came as a humble baby. He was proclaimed to humble men. And of course we know the story didn't end there, did it? He ultimately went to the cross. The, the manger was just a prelude to the cross. He, he went lower than the manger. How can you go lower than the manger? The cross. In fact, it says in Luke chapter 19, in Luke, when they buried Him, they wrapped Him in cloths and placed him in a tomb. These, and I think Luke intentionally put the verbal parallels there so that the, the, uh, you know, acute, the, the uh, aware reader would see that parallelism, that just as he came to be placed in that manger, it was ultimately so that he could be placed in the tomb, dying for our sins. And so as we come to the communion table, that's what this is all about. It's celebrating what Jesus has done for us. And, and we celebrate this as a church. If you're new to the church, not familiar with this, uh, the communion table is a, a symbolism, it's a celebration, it's a memorial of Jesus' death for us. The bread that we break symbolizes the body of Jesus that was broken, and the cup that we drink symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was shed. And uh, anyone who's here this morning is free to participate in this with us. You don't have to be a member of our church, you don't even have to be a Baptist. But we do ask that, that you would only participate if you know Christ yourself as your own Lord and Savior. Uh, because what you're saying by taking these things, when you eat this, it's, it's a symbolic way of saying, I've trusted in Jesus alone as my salvation. And we wouldn't want you to do that if that wasn't true for you. And so if, if that's not where you're at, just let the plates pass by. No one's going to think weird of you. But uh, that's what this is about. So those who know Jesus and love him are welcome to come and share in his table. And I ask the elders to join me here at the communion table. 
As we remember the night before Jesus went to the cross, he was eating that Passover Seder with his disciples, and he took some of the unleavened bread, some of the matzah bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And uh, Tim Ells, would you come and give thanks for the broken body of Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you cared enough, you loved us so much, that uh, you would send your Son. You would send your Son to be a a sacrifice for us, that you would uh, break his body for us so that we could live, we could uh, be in heaven with you. What a great sacrifice, what love you showed to us, Lord. Thank you, in Jesus' name. as the elders bring these uh, elements around to you and as you take them, spend this time praying. It's a moment to ponder. We're creating ponder space here. So ponder and think about the meaning of Christ's death for us. Confess sins. Just come to God. Maybe this first time, like I usually say, you talk to Him in weeks. So spend some time talking to God, praying and uh, drawing close to Him.
fellow broken people. Praise God that Jesus was broken so that we could be made whole. Let's eat together. We also remember that at the end of the Passover meal, Jesus took a cup of wine. He gave it a new meaning as well. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And ask the elders to join me again. And Rick Coughlin, would you give thanks for the shed blood of Jesus on the cross? Well, God, thank you that uh, you didn't just simply smite us, wipe us out, start all over again. That you loved us enough to not only come to earth to uh, show us how we should live, but that you did die for us, that you were put to death, you were sent as that lamb. We thank you for the blood, Father. We pray that, as Peter prayed, that uh, if this is what we need for salvation, not only our feet, but all of us, wash us in the blood, Father. Thank you. You know, there's a song, I, I didn't uh, prepare the praise team for this, but there's a song, it's always a scary way to start a sentence, isn't it? There's a song I feel like we just have to sing. So could you open your hymnals to hymn 292? We'll just sing in Acapulco. 292. And uh, if you could just stand and uh, give some time it? for the people down in the overflow worship. What song is it? What song is it? <laughs> And it's, it's a Christmas hymn, but it's just like everything we just talked about. So we'll sing the, the first, we'll sing one, two, four, and five. And it's a, a brief hymn, but you know it. So we'll try to do this a cappella. Maybe, John, you could get us started or give us a note, Bob. Or I know. I'm cashing in chips here. Yeah. Okay. Hey. All right, let's go. Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for thy holy nativity. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for Thee. Heaven's arches rang when the angels sang, proclaiming Thy royal decree. But of lowly birth Thou didst come to earth, and in Oh, come to my heart. 
Have a great week. See you next Sunday. God bless.